Christ Church Kingwood is a Christ-centered church that seeks to proclaim the gospel in both word and deed by glorifying God and making disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us now as we worship together in the ministry of the word. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Today's sermon text is from the book of Galatians. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles." And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked to, us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray together. Father God, we praise you this morning because you are gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And by your grace through Jesus Christ, we are now called your children. God, let us not lose sight of the reality that we are new creations through Jesus, that we have been called and named and sent out by you. So God, we ask that you would increase our faith this morning by your spirit and for your glory. God, that you would make us a people who reflect your love more and more each day. Amen. Well, good morning. Everybody doing good? Yeah, good to see you guys. Uh, so, kicking off chapter 2 of Galatians, kind of a long text this morning and, and honestly not the most exciting read, right? It's okay to say that 
Some texts are a little more exciting than others. And, and in this one, Paul is describing one of his trips to Jerusalem. And on face value, this is one of those sections of Scripture that's pretty easy to just breeze through and not really catch what Paul's saying or, or the importance. But, but these verses are integral to Paul's defense of the gospel, to his central message of this letter that there is only one gospel. So as we discussed in previous weeks, these false teachers were trying to discredit Paul's message, the, the gospel he was proclaiming. And, and one of the ways that they tried to do this was to discredit Paul himself. And while this situation is, is very much rooted in the first century, throughout history and even to this day, there have been countless people and are countless people who try to discredit Paul's authority and his apostleship. There are teachers and entire churches who deny the, the apostleship of Paul and thereby deny that any of his writings are the inspired word of God. Even here in our area, there are churches that deny that Paul's letters are the word of God and they are pointing people back to the law. It's crazy. Exactly what he's dealing with here. And so Paul's argument is of utmost importance. And one of the ways that these teachers, these false teachers, were trying to discredit Paul was by claiming that Paul's gospel was different than the gospel Peter proclaimed or the other apostles in Jerusalem. They were trying to disrupt the unity of the church by planting seeds of doubt and division surrounding the gospel. And it was a lot easier to get away with this in the first century. It was way easier because hopefully this is obvious. I pray this is obvious, kids. There were no iPhones in the first century. Good. There was no internet in the first century. They couldn't shoot an email or a text to Peter to fact check Paul's gospel. It was hundreds of miles across the sea or even longer by land to travel from Galatia to Jerusalem. So communication was not a simple thing. And so what Paul is doing here in our text is basically explaining that the source of his gospel was neither from the other apostles, as, as Carrie mentioned last week, nor contradictory to what they were teaching. The gospel Paul was teaching, just like Peter and the other apostles, was from Jesus Christ himself. So as we read last week after Paul's conversion, he said that he didn't immediately consult with anyone, nor did he go to Jerusalem to talk to the apostles. He went into Arabia and then back to Damascus. And then after three years, Paul finally went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, who's Peter, and Paul spent 15 days with Peter. And the only other apostle he saw while he was there was James, the brother of Jesus. And then Paul went back to teaching, widely unknown to the leaders other than the fact that people heard that he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith that he once tried to destroy. Which brings us to this morning's text. Then, after 14 years, I went up to Jerusalem. 14 years. He had one encounter with two apostles and then he's preaching the gospel for 14 years. 
The point Paul is getting at is that he just saw them this one time with two of these guys early on in his ministry, but he's been teaching this gospel which was revealed to him by Jesus for 17 years now. And so after 14 years, Paul goes back to Jerusalem because of a revelation, he says in verse 2. He doesn't tell us what the revelation was, but God obviously wanted him in Jerusalem. And his traveling companions were Barnabas and Titus, <coughs> which is a pretty interesting choice if you want to stir the pot or test the waters in Jerusalem, because Barnabas was a Jew, but Titus was a Greek. He was an uncircumcised Greek. Titus was the product of the very Gentile mission, which was in dispute and being challenged by these Judaizers. And if you're just jumping into this series with us, the Judaizers were these Jews who professed Christianity but were telling the Gentiles that they had to be circumcised and they had to follow the law of Moses to be true believers. So they were adding to the gospel, and that's really bad. So Paul says, I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. So this wasn't uh, an official meeting or a synod with all the Jerusalem leaders. Paul simply was in Jerusalem. He met with a few folks privately while he was there, and he set his gospel before them. In order, Paul says, to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. And we, it's easy to be confused with that language. This is not Paul having hesitations about his gospel or being unclear about his mission to the Gentiles. He's been preaching this gospel for 17 years. His, his concern wasn't, oh no, maybe I've got it wrong, but that his ministry, past and present, might be rendered fruitless by these false teachers. That these churches he had planted would crumble under the pressure of these false teachers. That's what he means by wanting to make sure he isn't running in vain. And this was a tense situation coming to Jerusalem. Paul traveled hundreds of miles bringing along a, an uncircumcised Gentile convert into the epicenter of the Jewish world. This could go really bad, especially for Titus. But it was a brilliant move on Paul's part. Rather than just showing up to talk about the theological idea of Gentile Christians... Rather than a bunch of Jews sitting around debating a faceless problem, Paul brought a man who was the very product of God's grace in this gospel mission that Paul had been called to. And things went well. We read in, in verse 3, even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. So it was a win. It was a win, but even though things went well, that doesn't mean that there was no opposition. As you can imagine, when Paul, the former super Jew, rolls into Jerusalem with a Gentile sinner as his traveling companion, <coughs> word is going to travel pretty fast. 
Word got out to these Judaizers, to these opponents of the grace of God for the Gentiles, and they started causing problems. Paul says false brothers were secretly brought in. So it sounds like some of them must have been in on this meeting or listening in on the meeting. They slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. To them, Paul says, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And I love this about Paul. He was a kind and gracious man. He served with love and humility, pouring his life out for others. But when people started messing with the truth of the gospel, Paul was bowing up. He's coming in hot and he's dropping divine curses on people, right? Stone me, beat me, imprison me. Go ahead and take my life. God will get the glory and I will get the joy of a race well run. But if you start manipulating the gospel, leading people astray, trying to devalue the grace of Jesus, those are fighting words. As Paul said, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that everyone will know that I, Paul, am a really important teacher. So that everyone will know that Paul is an influential, powerful leader in the church. So that everyone will respect Paul the Apostle. That's not what it says, is it? I hope you caught that. That's not what it says. We did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. It had nothing to do with Paul. That's how important the gospel is and how dangerous it is if we add anything to it. If we add any actions or merit or righteousness of our own to the gospel, we are rejecting the sufficiency of Jesus. And that's why Paul wanted to talk to these other apostles and leaders. He wanted to ensure that everybody was on the same page about the grace that had been extended to all believers. And in verses 6 through 10, Paul is just kind of describing the interaction, this conversation that he had with the apostles and the leaders. He says in verse 6, And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. <clears throat> those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. And the way that reads sounds kind of arrogant, right? If I said you add nothing to me. You might take offense to that. But he says, they added nothing to me, but in context, Paul is not talking about himself, but his message. Paul laid out the gospel that he had been proclaiming to the Gentiles, and they added nothing to it. There was no correction, no modification whatsoever. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. 
only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. And remember, this is not yet the Jerusalem council where all the leaders would come in and make this official edict on the topic. This was just Paul rolling into Jerusalem and calling an impromptu meeting with some influential people to make sure that they were all preaching the same gospel. And they were. The other apostles added nothing and extended the right hand of fellowship. And Paul walks through all of this in his letter to make clear to the Galatian churches that there was no division. There was no disunity between Paul and the other apostles. Paul's gospel is not some man-made spin-off of the true gospel because there is only one gospel. And this gospel, as Paul would later say to the Romans, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To everyone. And so, kind of given the narrative nature of this text, it's not the easiest one to just read through and apply to our lives, right? It's a little, it's a little harder. Paul is just describing his time in Jerusalem to further defend his gospel message. But I do want to look at kind of two broader points from this text that Paul's been building throughout the letter. First off is that, this is going to shock you, there is only one gospel, and it is unchanging. There is only one gospel, and it is unchanging. As Paul made clear in in verses 6 through 10 of chapter 1, there is only one gospel, and really every verse thus far. And now we can expand this thought and say that the whole New Testament presents this one gospel consistently. And so in theological circles, it's, it's kind of fashionable. You sound really smart. When you talk about the Pauline, the Petrine, and the Johannine gospels, right? I sound smart just saying those things. I feel really dumb, actually. <laughs> Right, they're really just fancy ways of saying Paul, Peter, and John's Gospels. Smart people like to make up words because you feel smarter. But that's not the point. You're all super smart. Love you guys. Uh, People like to talk about these three Gospels as if they are different. As if they were these distinctive forms of the Gospel. And they'll pit these against each other even as they do Paul and James right? Read their books like, ah, they're contradictory. But that's simply untrue. The apostles of Jesus do not contradict one another in Scripture, in their teachings. They were different people. They had different backgrounds and styles and forms of speech. They were called to different areas. They wrote to different audiences, which means they they stressed different aspects of the gospel, different applications of the gospel. So a letter to a primarily Jewish audience is going to sound very different and address widely different topics than a letter sent to Gentiles who converted from worshiping pagan gods or witchcraft. That's going to sound different. So, for example, Paul is writing basically to legalists here in this letter, and James wrote to, another big word, antinomians, people that didn't like the law. 
And the way you address these two issues with the gospel will be very different. But there is still only one gospel. God's Spirit inspired different men with different backgrounds and voices and personalities, speaking to different people about the truth of the gospel. Just like Paul describes the church as one body with many unique parts, having different gifts and functions, the apostles were no different. They were part of this body. The uniqueness of their messages were not divergent. They were complementary. Together, they give us a fuller understanding of God. It is one gospel that spans all people, all cultures, all backgrounds, all struggles and situations. And this is why Paul gathered with Peter and James and John and whoever else was there to talk about what God had been doing in their unique ministries and situations. And while who they were serving and the struggles they were facing were very different, their conclusion was that their gospel was the exact same. As Paul says in our text, he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. There is only one gospel and it is unchanging. And then secondly, the truth of the gospel must be maintained. And when I say that, the, the truth of the gospel must be maintained, I'm speaking of maintaining the gospel in both word and action. Both word and action. In this letter, Paul is kind of defending gospel doctrine. He was determined to resist the heresy of these Judaizers. And as we'll see next week, he was also ready to oppose Peter to his face in front of people when his conduct contradicted the gospel they both proclaimed. Paul was passionate about the gospel. He's been dropping curses and standing up against false teachers in defense of the gospel, but he was not a hard man. He was tough, no doubt. He was resolute and he was driven, but he was also gentle and caring, right? He's the guy that was weeping with the Ephesian elders when he knew he wouldn't see them again. Paul was just as driven to live out the gospel as he was to proclaim and defend it. And so one of the most shocking pictures of this to me is the fact that Paul can say in chapter 5, verse 2 of this letter, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. That's not the shocking part yet. It's pretty clear, right? We're, we're only starting chapter 2 here, and we get that, of course. Yeah, accept circumcision, Christ is of no advantage. But if you know about Paul's life, you know that later on in his ministry, he's going to make Timothy, well, he's going to ask Timothy to join him on one of these missionary journeys, and he's going to make him be circumcised before they go. That's weird, right? He's going to make Timothy be circumcised. Sounds crazy, sounds even hypocritical, right? But here's what we need to realize. Circumcision wasn't the point in this letter or 
any New Testament letter. Being circumcised wasn't a sin. If it were, if that were the case, then Paul would have been writing in this letter, hey Jews, you need to stop that. But he's not. Circumcision was part of the Jewish cultural identity, which was fine, but it had no bearing on their standing before God any longer. Paul told the Galatians not to accept circumcision because it was being presented, even demanded, as necessary for salvation. And Paul was adamant that we had nothing to the saving work of Jesus. So Paul could say to the Galatians, if you accept circumcision as necessary for salvation, Christ will be of no advantage to you. But when it came to Paul's mission to spread the gospel, he would gladly remove any stumbling block that might inhibit the message of Jesus from being heard. Even something that he found dumb, that he had opposed for years, like a Greek, being circumcised. But the stark difference between the Galatians seeking circumcision and Timothy being circumcised was that the Galatians were doing it to justify or save themselves. But Timothy did it so that others might be saved. It was an act of humility and love for their weaker brothers. This is what Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 9, 22 and 23. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. It's awesome. This was Paul's entire life and ministry. He had the biblical right to get paid for his ministry, but he chose to receive nothing. He chose to work as to not be a burden or a stumbling block. He had the right to demand obedience as an apostle. But time and again, he appealed to people's hearts, not to his authority. Paul could have leaned on his Jewish pedigree, his knowledge, his authority, his power. He could have pointed to all the churches he planted, all the lives he impacted, and said, Honor me. Give me what I deserve. He could have claimed his rights. But instead, time and again, Paul would actively lay down his rights for the good of others and the advancement of the gospel. This is the very heart of the gospel, right? Jesus humbled himself and took on flesh. He laid down his rights. He laid down what he deserved. He was misunderstood and maligned. He suffered unimaginable wrongs so that others might experience unimaginable grace. And that is the call of the gospel to look beyond what we deserve, to look beyond ourselves altogether, and to look to others, to how we can encourage and lift up others and advance the kingdom of God rather than the kingdom of me. And I don't know what exactly that looks like in your situation, but some of you have jobs, right? It could be at work. 
right? Are we always fighting for what we deserve, what you've earned, what you've built? Are other people at work obstacles in the way of your success, in the way that you work? Is your greatest concern about building God's kingdom or building your kingdom? Or, or in relationships. Most of us have some sort of relationship with someone. You're here, right? When you're challenged or misunderstood, or maybe a friend just looks at you wrong, is your first inclination right, to snap back? Claws out, defend your opinion or your honor or just to make sure that your voice is heard no matter what. I mean, it's your right to do so. It is your right to throw that temper tantrum, to put that person in their place. It is. But whose kingdom are we building in those moments? Listen, we... We live in a Christian culture that's ready to die on a lot of hills that are not the gospel. A lot of hills. People take their stand on the gospel of politics, the gospel of my rights, the gospel of affluence. I mean, we all live through 2020. I mean, how many times did you hear someone claim, it's my right to do or not do whatever? Over and over. And I'm not arguing You have every right to be unloving. You do. Thank you, America. You are free to be as selfish and greedy and self-consumed as you desire. It's your right. But if we're going to follow Jesus, if we're going to proclaim an eternal hope and kingdom and joy beyond comparison beyond comprehension, we are going to have to stop looking at ourselves and lay some stuff down. There are parts of us that are going to have to die. Paul didn't walk around proclaiming the gospel of what is legal. He proclaimed the gospel of what is loving. And Jesus showed us what true love looks like. It is a life laid down, a life poured out for the glory of God and the good of others. As Martin Luther says, let this be, let this be then the conclusion of all together, that we will suffer our goods be taken away, our name, our life, and all that we have. But the gospel our faith, Jesus Christ, we will never suffer to be wrestled from us. This is where I want to drive things home. The gospel that we proclaim must be the gospel that we live. Paul goes to great lengths to make the point that there is only one gospel, The apostles are all on the same page. There is no disunity, no division concerning the gospel when it comes to the apostles. But the gospel is not simply an intellectual ascension. The gospel is a truth that saturates the entirety of our existence. 
If the proclamation of our mouths do not match the proclamation of our lives, we have fooled ourselves. The life modeled by Jesus, this life laid down and poured out for the glory of God and the good of others, is the life we have been called into. We have been redeemed, adopted, and set free from bondage so that we might proclaim the love of God and the glory of Jesus to this world, both with our mouths and by the way we pour our lives out for others, gladly laying down our rights, our egos, all the things society says we deserve so that others might know the glory of God through the way that we love and that they would long to know the God we serve. Let's pray together. Father God, we pray that you would stir in us a passion for the gospel, a passion to proclaim the love that you have shown us in Jesus Christ and to be a living embodiment of that love. God, following Jesus and laying down our rights and our egos and even our lives so that your love might be seen and experienced through your church. And God, we pray that we would experience the joy that comes through obedience as we look to Jesus and follow him, knowing, as Jesus said, he is with us always. Amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Thank you for worshiping with us through the preaching of God's word. We exist to glorify God by making disciples. We would love to have you join us in person as we gather together on Sundays at 10 a.m. at the Covenant Preparatory School on Hamblin Road in Kingwood, Texas. To learn more about Christ Church Kingwood, visit our website at ChristChurchKingwood.org.